welcome to another episode of the Draw Today podcast, where we encourage you to draw every day. On today's episode, we have a grudge match between digital 3D modeling techniques and traditional 3D modeling techniques. Really, you ask? No, not really. But we do discuss kit bashing, 3D modeling programs, and when to use a mixture of both. Also, when to use a mixture of neither. Well, we got three people on the podcast tonight. Uh, let's start off with Mike Sass. Hi, my name is Mike Sass. My website is sassart.com. And Grant Cooley. Hello, this is Grant Cooley. You can find my work at grantcooley.com. And I am Mark Harchar. You can find my work at markharchar.com. So, Mike Sass, offline, and I were talking about... 3D modeling and the creation of art, and we thought it might be a good idea to have a podcast about it because there's some interesting things to discuss as far as different techniques, whether they're in the digital world or the physical world, and so what we have is three people on this podcast who have touched on different working methods for utilizing 3D modeling in the creation of their art and we want to see if we can flesh out some ideas and uses and what's good what's bad uh pros and cons for each that type of thing so uh let's start with uh thinking about uh, the blog itself since we are the drawn today blog and kind of resurrect for just a second what you guys are working on at the moment since it is the drawn today podcast so what are you guys drawing today what am i what are we drawing today at this yeah. very moment, I am developing two different concepts for uh, a new physical appearance for Gandalf in my Lord of the Rings series and Radagast the Brown. Gotcha. How about you, Mike? Um, I just sent off two half-pagers for Paizo, and today I'm finishing off two roughs for World of Warcraft trading card game. And I used 3D models in all of these images. So I think what we were talking about, Mark, was, to be clear, using 3D models, physical models, and computer models for reference, not to create art per se as, as final illustrations, but in the visualization and reference stage. So You're right. I think that's a little more accurate description of what we were talking about. Um, well, myself, I'm working on a personal piece, which I've been working on for a, a long period of time, which is a, uh, an image of a, a B-25 bomber, uh, which I've also used extensive uh, model reference uh, for a number of things in that piece. So um, why don't we quickly go around the table and talk about... Well, Mark, how about we just talk about your project there? Because I think that's... That's the conversation that, that kicked off us discussing this, where we were talking on Skype and, uh, you know, talking about the project you're working on, and you were discussing how you thought you had built all these, these real-world physical models to visualize um, your B-25 
B-52, whatever, B-whatever, bomber. 25. Okay, whatever. And uh, you were having an issue with the glass reflectivity or the fact that your your physical model wasn't giving you the information that you needed. And then what we were doing, if you remember, we were talking, and I quickly went online, found a stock-free um, 3D Studio Max model of a B-52, and in 10 minutes with you watching, I had pulled it up in 3D Studio, lit it, pointed a camera at it, and was was looking at the uh, the reflectivity of, of the cockpit glass, um, the exact issue that you were having difficulty with visualizing with your real model. Um, within 10 minutes, I was spinning that model around in 3D and was able to, to sort of see the issues. So that, I think, tweaked the conversation a little bit as to why something is better in some instances than another and what are the sort of pros and cons of these different approaches. So, Right. And to give a, a little more background on that, in order to try to replicate what this plane would look like in the, in the colored light scheme that I uh, wanted for the piece, I went and I bought a plastic model of a B-25 plane. Uh, I lit it in my studio, and I was taking reference photography of it with a with a, a backdrop which simulated the environmental lighting of what I wanted to uh, have in my piece. Now, the the model itself was it was a toy model, so it was you know one one hundred size or whatever it is. You know, the the model itself was maybe you know eight inches long, uh, but it was I mean, it was not perfectly identical to you know, an actual plane. I mean, it had basic proportions uh, and it had windows and things in the, in the right places, but the windows were made of plastic, uh, you know, which are different thicknesses than a, a real plane. When you're talking about reflective surfaces, you know, thickness is one of the things that, you know, can, can change the properties of it. So, since that wasn't giving me the information that I needed, I also went out into the real world into a uh, an air show and was taking pictures of an actual B-25 that was out in the real world that I could stand, I could move around, but it was, it was an overcast day. Uh, the lighting was, you know, just very gray and all of the reflectivity I was getting on the windows into the cockpit and stuff was just this gray, flat kind of looking, you know, reflection patterns. And that I didn't feel was ac- accurate to you know, what it would have been in the piece I was creating either. So, you know, even though I had these real-world models to reference, they weren't providing me with the information that I was giving, that I was looking for. Um, And like you said, you, Mike, were able to go into the computer uh, and and actually gather more information in in that 15 minutes that we played with that that digital program uh, than I was able to get after hours upon hours of actually really looking at the stuff that I was trying to paint. So, has anybody else had any experiences in a similar fashion with any pieces they've been working on where digital works better than reality or, or in the case of Grant, you know, like yourself, you work mostly with physical you know, modeling, kit bashing, that type of stuff. 
where the physical model was able to give you just so much more than the digital could give you. Well, I think the, that. The, the problem we're talking about is between the three of us, um, we have different sort of experiences and specializations. Like, I haven't done any physical real-world modeling at all, but I've done a fair bit of 3D work, like maybe... 15 years worth so that's that's significant and then mark you've done some of both but neither maybe super extensively so um i guess we could just sort of go around the table and, and talk about everybody's individual experiences because i don't know if any one of us singularly can can compare um with only one experience well, I don't know that we're actually out to, you know, prove one is better than the other or anything like that. I think we're just trying to determine, you know, what type of things are good for what, how, you know, what are the pros of, of you know, digital, well, I, I, what, are, what are the pros of, of physical, you know, cons, and just kind of explore how we can use these things going forward mm-hmm. to better value. Well, I, I think I – think, I think Mike's approach is good. If we talk about our individual experiences, say this is what I do, this is what I have done, then uh, listeners out there can uh, they'll have a chance to zero in on some of those things, maybe uh, pose some questions, and then we can come back to that problem, how we would approach that problem, and successes, failures we would have along with that. Um, how does that sound? It sounds great, and I liked uh, Mark's... Mark's thought that we would sort of discuss um, some actual pieces we're working on and the instances where 3D is helping us. I think uh, I think that's going to be interesting to show people uh, the vastly different projects and 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 maybe even things like deadlines dictating the approaches we take. And then why don't we, if we have the opportunity, uh, whenever this podcast is live, the listeners out there listening to it now, would hopefully, maybe we can put up uh, on the Drawn Today blog or links off to the pieces we've either created with that, references we've used. In my case, you know, I would have photos of the, the actual models, and then they can refer back to that. Mm-hmm. Which I guess those listening to this podcast right now will have determined the success or failure of that concept. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, all right, well, I, you want me to start off, or who wants to go first? Yeah, you go ahead. Um, talk about some, some of the real models you've made and, and what kind of projects you've been able to uh, successfully integrate that approach. Sure. Well, my background, uh, I've, I've been a, a hobby game enthusiast for almost 20 years and made my first kit-bashed vehicles for Warhammer 40K and those games when I was in junior high school. So I've been, I was, you know, and of course as a kid, like so many of us, building models and doing all these things, but it was really in junior high school and high school when I started converting things and making my own creations, making my own anything. And then about seven or eight years ago, I opened up a comic and game store and, uh, you know, of course started doing that much more heavily, uh, running a game store and, and doing custom armies and things like that for people. So that's my background is, is about, 20 years running, but probably about seven or eight years solid of uh, constructing my own creations out of plastic hard, brass rods, and uh, kit bashing, which is a reference to taking a model kit for any instance or genre and converting it, taking pieces from it, and making your own creation. So what, uh, what I started doing with that when I, I really started working on illustration work in the past year or two and getting really frustrated with 
the lack of reference for something that I would want, or I would really want how metal would reflect, rusty metal would reflect this. And uh, I got into my head to start making these maquettes. So I started out with some pretty rough things, or just making, and constructing and painting uh, with years of, again, with years of miniature painting and uh, set design for those things, constructing instances where like I would need this reflection and, and getting something out of that. Then last year for IMC Illustration Masterclass, I was working on this, uh, the piece for that class was uh, uh, this jet cycle piece. And I, so I constructed this elaborate steampunk jet cycle that uh, had hatches that opened up, valves, I, I worked, overworked the mechanisms so I could, it would, it would have this dimension and, and reality because I knew James Gurney was going to be the, the guest uh, lecture teacher there and his maquettes are famous and he's just his his work is amazing so i i went a little overboard for that but also because i wanted something to come from that so for that piece the maquette uh, i built it to so i could i could change the image when i got to the class if i needed to which i ended up doing and i wanted to be able to have the versatility to to work on the fly. I could change, I could just rotate it, spend 15 minutes and get a hundred different images with different light sources, however I wanted it to, to change my concept. So I put about 25, 30 hours in on the model, uh, the construction design and then painting it. I painted up full as if I was going to sell the kit afterwards, which I've taken it to a number of conventions and shows and and struck up conversations. I painted wood paneling on it. It was it's ridiculous, but uh, so I did that. Had it for the class, and it ended up making so much of the piece success. And James Gurney was blown away, which of course was a huge honor for me, and it got featured on his blog. So going that extra distance got some extra exposure, and it it created more of the piece for me. I was able to create a more dynamic angle, take a a solid concept, and I had all these elaborate buildings, these Venetian bridges. But it was that, that dynamism that came from having the model right in front of me and just being able to tweak it and, and move it around to fit my immediate needs and then shoot it. So for that piece, I did that. And then afterwards, I created a whole series of these steampunk vehicles that went for this book cover series that I was pitching. And I, I also went even further with the models, made them more functional and posable. The, the big steam engine that has these big construction arms the arms are fully posable, the hands open and close, so that I could use these maquettes for multiple models instead of putting 25 hours, or multiple paintings rather, for, I put 25 hours in to 30 hours on each of these pieces, but I would then be able to use those as a resource for a series of paintings for each and get inspired again because I'd have this piece in front of me, I could, I could move it around, I could have these two or three, I could pose this a whole city right in front of me if I need to, or just this snapshot, but giving me that versatility ended up creating a number of images that have been really successful for me, sold originals that featured them, again, because of that dynamism, having that dimensionality in front of me instead of just having a clever drawing or anywhere from 25 to 75% of the reference and then just figuring out the rest. I had it all right there in front of me and then could, could make adjustments. That's pretty in-depth, Grant. Um, let's have a let's have an opposite side and talk about the digital world, Mike. Since you do most of your uh, modeling in 3D uh, sure. digitally, so I guess um, my experience is like I started in the game industry in in 1996, 
and uh, immediately was sort of art directing 3D and and making uh, making images from 3D models. Um, early on in my career, I would make um, like the ads and the box art and whatnot for like Neverwinter Nights and Baldur's Gate and all the original Bioware games. Um, I made the Knights of the Old Republic cover using um, like the 3D game models from the game, which I would um, use as reference and then add photo reference to, as well as subdividing the models and making them higher res. So, so working in the game industry, um, I got a pretty good understanding of of 3D art. I I was sort of the main cinematic scene setup texturing guy for a lot of our early movie sequences. So. I got a lot of experience in materials and in texture mapping and whatnot. Um, but now moving more into illustration as my career is going now, um, I am very traditionally minded and I do understand the pitfalls of of the um, literalness that, that 3D generated references can give you. So when I use 3D art now, I have a lot of horsepower and a lot of experience, but I try to minimize it. I try to I try to use it just as a tool, just to get a solution, just to get um, like a perspective or an outline for a form. And what I do is I force myself to always repaint the picture from scratch so that the picture has uh, a cohesive veneer and it has a rendering quality sameness throughout so I'll never I'll never composite images with 3d rendering I will always use it just as reference um, now some of the things that rendering in a digital program can be used for it can do things that you can't do in the real world for instance um, things like like text like a lot of my recent pieces I've had to do things like had spell effects that were, say, a bunch of ruins around a circle in perspective, or shapes um, that are graphic like that with like no thickness in perspective. So in, in, in 3D, you can create texture maps and you can create models and uh, render them out. And what you can get is when you do your renderings, you can get what's called alpha channels of the rendering. So basically, let's say I have um, some text and perspective that I render out. I can have things like glow effects on it. I can have blurs. And what it does is it spits out an alpha channel with the image, which allows you to select the transparency of the render. So I can composite like transparent text or text with effects and you can model and visualize other things that are not able to be reproduced in, in real world, like like shapes and lines that have no actual thickness. Um, you can view objects from any angle without being held. So I guess, you know, if you build, um, you know, a plastic or a metal model, it has to be propped up. It has to be held with, with a stick or a string or a hand. Um, but in, in virtual 3D space, I can look at an object from any angle. I can, I can visualize it and snap a picture without the constraints of, of the real world. 
Um, you can do things like copying and instancing objects. So if I spend time to create an object in 3D, I can make a million copies of it. So for instance, let's say, like anything you want in a scene, um, you just put the work in once and you know you just hold down shift and drag and you can create as, as many versions of that as, as possible. So I guess that that's a big benefit on uh, real world 3D modeling where you would have to make multiple copies of something. I guess getting back to what I originally said was I try not to use um, 3D rendering for the basis of an image. I think it's really good for things like effects or for things like certain perspectives like I was saying about text but as far as as physical models go, if, if I am to make um, like a spaceship in 3D, let's say, um, what I'm going to do is just get the forms and the light and convert that to outlines and, and paint it, uh, you know, in the computer with all the sort of labor that a, a digital painting takes. I, I'm not going to sort of use the, the smooth computer rendering and, and try to... Uh, to mask that into to digital painting. I'm going to do it all over again. So I'm just interested in getting um, the perspectives and in, in the outside shapes of things. What do you think about some of the things I've just mentioned there, Mark? I'm thinking that there are a few things as opposed to, you know, Grant's real-world maquettes that, like you said, you can do that, that he wouldn't be able to in the real-world stuff like your, you know, your spinning runes that have no dimension to them uh, type of thing. I mean, obviously, that's not something you can replicate in the real world. Well, uh, you, I mean, you could. You could, you could well, create you really... paper stencils and you know, hold it up with string and yada yada, but it would take you ten times as long. And it, it would, you know, it could easily get ripped or destroyed or, or lost, so. Yeah, that's true. Um, the one thing I was thinking as, as both of you were, were speaking on the subject was that there's definitely time involved in either. Um, one being, you know, Grant says he took, you know, take 25, 30 hours to build a maquette, you know, to the amount of detail he wants. And, and you might, might be able to say, well, I can build that, you know, in an hour in, in three-dimensional space. Um, there's also the learning curve of the, the digital tools, which, um, you know, it, depending on the person could be extensive, could be, you know, it could be a lot simpler depending on, you know, your comfort level of, of some of these digital tools. Um, a great thing to reiterate, though, is is the availability of stock models of just typing typing in B fifty two bomber and and getting somebody's stock model within a matter of minutes. That is true. Um, it is it is hard. Well, I mean, like I said, I, I purchased a uh, uh, you know a, a stock model, you know, if you will, of of the bomber that I'm working on. Of course, it did take a week to get here. <laughs> You know, it wasn't immediately available to download. Right. Um, I would. Have I guess to another say, thing I was going to say too is I never use 3D models for figurative reference. I only use it generally for architecture, structures, things that are man-made, things that are perspective-based. I would never use it for a a human that needs to have 
you know, action and and have gesture and in in the intricacies of you know of human form. I, I think that's that's going down definitely uh, a pat, a path wrought wrought with uh, pitfalls. So I, I think we can all tell when somebody uses a a three D mannequin through poser or whatever. <laughs> And I think that's it's is well known in the industry for being a bad practice. So um, I think it's just understanding the limits of of the 3D model, the digital 3D model. From my experience, it's best to use it purely as reference and uh, and develop your drawing and painting skills so that as you're working in 3D, it's it's not replacing anything, and you're not uh, you know you're not being dictated by the output. You're you're using the output as as a planned solution and not taking it verbatim or taking it as an accidental solution for your image. Okay. Well, since you brought up, um, you know, not using digital for uh, figures, so what do you use in order to have reference available for any figures you create? Since you're not doing digital, are you using real world reference? Or are you um, using photography, or you know, what do, what are you using then in replacement of the digital tools that you don't like to use? For jobs that I have the time, or jobs where you need the certain fidelity, like let's say a close-up expressive face, I'll always use photography, and that will be photography with two flash-synced lights and an SLR camera. Now, for figures in action or fantastical figures, I'll always construct it with constructive drawing techniques, like comic book drawing techniques. And if there needs to be a higher level of realism to an active figure, that can be done after. You can, you can apply f- photographic reference to a drawn solution, as we've discussed in some of our other podcasts. Um, but I think... Trying to do an action pose from photography, although it's a different subject than what we're talking about on this podcast, is also very difficult and very wrought with with pitfalls. Um, you just can't photograph people moving very easily. It's you know to get somebody to hold a pose um, steady enough to take a good photo and, and expect that to be dynamic. It's something that is is almost impossible, and, and better just not. Um, to rely on it's better to rely on on the drawing and and the gesture that comes about from um, the silhouette and the in the marks that you make as an artist so I'll use different types of references for different pictures or for different instances but in general figurative reference will be drawn or photography and architectural or structural reference will be 3d models now things like foliage and whatnot, I guess I would just use Photo Swipe from from Google Images. Okay. Since you were discussing then, uh, you know, the construction of you know your action figures, um, I can tell you that I have in the past used combination of you know real world 3D modeling um, and the digital tools to resolve some issues. For example. Create, you know, I've created a figure, you know, drawn out the figure, got my gesture, uh, constructed a figure, and used, um, you know, had 
a model or you know a, a friend or whatever you know pose in in my you know my sketch sketched out pose for this figure um, and generated photo reference from that with a, a, a lighting scheme which I thought would have been appropriate at the beginning of for what I needed and once I got into it determined that the the lighting scheme on the model and my photography was just not quite right um, so at that point it, rather than trying to get a model back in or trying to pose myself in a mirror or you know set up cameras on timers cuz you know trying to um, get photography sometimes is difficult uh, it was easier for me to pull up the you know a program like you know scoff scoff poser um, and actually you know build the figure as my sketch was you know in a, in a few minutes and put the lighting on it the way that I believed it needed to be as opposed to what I had in my reference uh, and then combine the two and use that lighting pattern on my already created um, figure sketch you know in conjunction with my model to, to modify the lighting um, so that I can get a, a finished figure uh, you know from from that standpoint using all you know all of the tools that I I had available to pro to get you know the best reference that I can get to solve the problems that I had in front of me. Um, mm -hmm. No, that sounds that sounds interesting, and that sounds like the right way to do it. What I'm just saying is you're you don't want to cut that poser model out and and paste him in a digital file or paste that outline on your canvas and start painting that. You know, you're you're looking at information and, and that's totally um, what reference should be for. It shouldn't dictate the graphical qualities, the outlines, the shapes of your picture. The the reference should never make its way to your picture in whole. So Grant, do you do any actual sculpting, you know, from clay to do figures or, or anything like that um, as far as real-world physical type models, or, or what do you use for modeling reference or figure reference? Uh, for figure reference for fantastical creatures like dragons and things like that, I it's a combination of drawing out, uh, with any of this stuff, is, is drawing out the concept first, and then I will use the uh, I'm trying to think uh, green stuff basically it's an epoxy putty that you would use for miniature games things like that to sculpt out the form uh, I've done in the past I've I've gotten a stockpile of the McFarland dragons to have a basic shape dragon shape file down everything so here's skull thing when I was first starting this and then uh, I would sculpt pretty much shave it down to a blank, which was ridiculous. And now, of course, I, I just make a, a modeling blank and sculpt on top of that. And that, that's what I do for that. So as far as getting the horns and lighting and mouth gestures, and even with those, I've gotten ridicu ridiculous for making mouth hinges so I can have the mouth open and close and have wings uh, with, that can spread out and expand and then used just ridiculous fabrics. I mean, again, I, I take it sometimes too far. A lot of it, because I'll show it at conventions, I'll say this is my process. I'll be doing a panel on maquettes or buildings, so I want to have something there in front of me. And I also have the option of selling it. But So for fantastical creatures, if I'm really working out a tricky lighting thing, and with a lot of my paintings, 
the with creatures involved, it's all about the atmosphere and lighting, and I want to get it just right. So I'll then take that out and shoot it. And of course, you have to tweak stuff. You you're not going to take the exact reference, especially with a, a cre- something you made. It's not going to have the detail that a real life would have. I'll take that, combine it with photo references of exotic tortoises or lizards or basilisk stuff. You know, just whatever you have to give it the scale or. You know, just that 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 life that that a model wouldn't bring. Just like Mike was saying, you would never want to take any reference and take it exactly as it is. Every now and then, you'll get a perfect photo shot that comes really close. But even then, you're gonna just the very act of creating. You're going to modify things, and you need to 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 revel on that and and see your hand in your own work. Uh, which is a problem that I see. I, I had very much that, that same problem starting off. I was trying to copy stuff, thinking that's photorealism. It's like, well, no. What we perceive in a, a, a photograph, no matter how well lit, is is not actual reality. It's never going to be what you saw. It's never going to be what you intended. Uh, you may get inspiration from it, and you may use a lot of it, but you need to go from there. So the same thing is true for my maquette. Something, again, that I learned from James Gurney that he, you know, a lot of times he'll just make this this wonderful dinosaur maquette of this building, and when he gets done with it, he'll trash it. He doesn't have any attachment to it. I obviously have a different approach for a lot of mine, but but I've taken that to some of them where I'll build this creature or this form, and just to get the lighting. As far as use it for people, my most sex- successful paintings are clearly the ones where I have had a complete control over costuming, accessories. A really close friend of mine, an artist who does some amazing maquettes, uh, Michael Balachik, uh, he's, uh, he has a costuming company as well. And so I've drawn on them, Aerodani Studios. I've drawn on them extensively for costuming projects and getting everybody out there, multiple figures, so that you have that lighting, you have that time of day, we have that setting that we want, and we get it really close, and then you go through and modify it from there. Um, but you know you don't always have that luxury, and that that sucks too. You've got to you've got to use yourself. You've got to use people around you as much as you can. We all look at uh, for all of my drawing and figure drawing stuff. Uh, if I if there aren't many figure drawing opportunities here in Nashville, take what I can get. But then I'm using. We've done a whole diff- series of podcasts on different photo, photo references. But um, tying into that is that you use those as a starting point and use all those photos, those wonderful images that you might come across on Google Images or whatever browser, Flickr, wherever you're finding your images. Use those as a starting point and not not the end result uh, because otherwise you, you haven't brought anything new to the table. You found something neat that somebody else created and you just slapped a, a coat of paint on it. Or, or maybe not. I've seen a lot of people that, that haven't even done that. So... So again, for me, my references, creatures, make them if I have to, and uh, but everything everything starts out with the thumbnails and works from there. Let me ask you this question: Do you ever paint your models as a still life rather than photographing them and then using the photographic reference? And the reason I ask that is because um, if we go back to the discussion that I was we were having, uh, where Mike was bringing in that stock. Uh, model of that plane into 3D Max and and playing with the light in order to get the um, you know the reflectivity on the windows. The the one thing I noticed about the lighting in that 
3D model on the computer was that the shadows that the light sources were creating were, you know, dark, almost black and, and flat, almost like you might get in, you know, certain photography, uh, you know, something that has deep shadows. Whereas I know for myself from just experience of, you know, painting from still life, uh, the shadows that you're getting on something that you're seeing as opposed to what you're uh, of a, a photograph of what you're seeing uh, are two different things. They're, you know, the, 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 the shadows and the darks and things are, are uh, in photography tend to be you know, darkened and flattened, whereas in reality there's so much more nuance and depth to those darks and shadows. So I was wondering, ha have you ever Grant painted right from the maquette you make in order to try to you know, pick up some of that more realistic lighting reality and vice and vice versa mike have you found that you know trying to use any of these 3d models that are digital don't give you a true sense of reality of lighting even though it's you know calculating all these things out for you they're still it's almost like giving you photographic type of lighting which is isn't quite right either of you can answer <laughs> well uh yes uh I would say I do, I do will work heavily from the photographs I ended up using. Uh, those will definitely be a strong reference for all of it, but since I'm also not creating a, an entire Venetian village, although I, I did make a, <laughs> a three-dimensional village out of a village rather out of uh, cookie boxes and cereal boxes and things like that to set it up. But uh, yeah, that, that, again, that's the advantage. Not only can I have the versatility to change concepts, but I have the model right in front of me. And will it give me the greens that I want in my shadows? Probably not. Will it give me some of those things? No. But I will have that roundness of form so that it's – and I'll always have the, the piece right right next to me, right in front of me, because I can just look over. Again, it won't be – maybe it won't be the lighting that I have specifically on a piece, but I get that sense of dimensionality. Maybe I, I, can, I, you know, I can then hold it up. I've got a paintbrush in one hand, the model in the other, and – twist it around, try and capture as much as I can. They're like, well, here, let's, this is a little cooler. Oh, I can see deeper into that exhaust or this intake. Oh, cool, now that, that gets there. So it's, you take this ultra-realistic setting, and then, and then you play with it a little bit more. You find the things you want, the things you want to extend and emphasize and make, you know, hypersensitize it a little bit. But um, yeah, but do I, do I work from them exclusively like that? No. It's, your, your reference to the advantage of, of course, of photography, uh, photograph is that, that you have a still of it. But then, just like with figure drawing, you know, all the figure reference in the world is pales in comparison to having the model in front of you. We don't always have that luxury, but if you can get someone to pose for you or you're going to a session or something like that, those tricks when the... And, and this is something that I'm really trying to develop in my own work is to get that life back into it when it feels flat when it feels more like a photograph either because I've been working too much on reference or just it, I'm not getting the dimension out of that understanding that you're you're asking about that we're striving for with some of these pieces then then having that in front of you is is just been invaluable and again there there's some of my more successful pieces and very well received but um so yes the short answer would be yes <laughs> how about you Mike <laughs> What was the no. question? <laughs> you, want, you want the shorter? You give me a shorter or a long uh, answer? I'll just say, uh, maybe. 
No. <laughs> um, I think it, it sort of comes back to what I was saying about not wanting the 3D reference to dictate the solution. So when I learned all my sort of 3D skills many years ago, I reached a point where I I um, stopped learning them and stopped trying to learn new versions of the programs, new plugins, more powerful programs. I got to a point where I sort of knew what I needed to know to do reference, and anything beyond that is diminishing returns. Like, it's going to start to take away from the amount of the picture that's made up through design or through drawing or through being uh, clever. So I reached a certain point where I didn't I didn't want to learn more 3D and didn't want more powerful tools. So having said that, you can go as far as you want with the lighting in a 3D program. You could make 3D reference renderings so realistic that you couldn't tell the difference between a photograph and a computer output. Like when you go watch, you know, your latest Hollywood movie, they're using such powerful computers and such, you know, sophisticated rendering solutions that it blends seamlessly with blue screen actors. So I'm obviously not using those programs and not taking that amount of time. And that's that's a purposeful thing on my part. So exactly what you're saying, Mark, when you shine a light on a 3D object, you get a black shadow. So then you have to shine a light from the opposite direction, indicating light bouncing. So realistically, you could have a hundred million lights in your scene, and it still wouldn't be as realistic as reality. Every single surface in reality is a light source. Everything that's reflective is a light source. So there is no way 3D rendering can ever approximate that. So what we do is, um, in 3D, when we shine a light, let's say like a spotlight, it's giving you like directional shadows being cast, and it's giving you a shadow and light side to an object. Now, of course, the bounce radiosity of the fill light is going to be the result of the reflectivity of the surrounding materials, the color of the sky, all the environmental attributes together blending into light sources that vary from inch to inch in real world. So in 3D, we're obviously not going to have um, the control to that level, to the, the level of reality. So what we do is, is approximate big things like I can change uh, a general skylight to approximate say, the light coming from the dome of the sky, which will then color the, sh the cast shadows in the scene. Or I can place a, a colored light under an object, indicating, like I'm, I'm looking at something I just finished here. I have a, a character kneeling on a rock, and these rocks are gray. So I can put a gray light on the shadow side of that character that would sort of simulate the... Uh, the reflectivity of those rocks and, and the color bouncing and up into his chest. Um, but getting back to what I said originally is the most important thing is to get reference from your 3D models to get the big shadow shapes and to get information as to where the highlights on an object would fall, where the Terminator shadow 
falls and all the colors and all the sh- the nuances like the uh, attenuation of shadows and the shadow softness those things you have to make up um, as an artist you have to make sure they shoehorn into the design of your picture so you could pursue a higher level of reference you could pursue more realism in your 3D models but I think ultimately as you do that you're losing your ability to choose and so there's a certain point where I think reference is good enough and it's diminishing returns and even harmful to your image to have a lot of it dictated by randomness does that make sense? Oh, I understand. Sure. <clears throat> Wait, you're not going to argue with me? Uh, no, I don't have it in me. Okay. It's late. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I am in spiritually. <laughs> well, I, what I, I do want to talk about something quickly is the speed factor. Um, going back to what Grant said, you know, earlier about you know spending 25 hours or something on, on a maquette um, or on a piece or model or something for you know an image he's working on um, there are times when you know a commission is going to come across or a piece is going to need to be done um, as quickly as possible and from an external viewpoint you know I would see the ability to you know, take a sock 3D model from, you know, download it from the internet and be able to put it in a 3D program um, and be able to light it and spin it around and do whatever you can so that you can just minimize your amount of time that uh, you are spending to, to generate your reference uh, so that, you know, you can meet your deadline on time or, or what have you. I can see that as a benefit. How would you respond to that, Grant, being that you're not the biggest fan of using those tools? Um, what would you do if you were in that uh, instance where you know you needed to generate that reference to you know the degree that you need it, but it's you know to to do the the physical creation of it is going to take you just way too much time? What would you end up doing in that instance? Uh, my initial response would be that I would, I would hopefully have the forethought or planning to take care of it. Admittedly, if a commission came in that was it was insanely time sensitive, and I couldn't do that, uh, I I would probably still make it if it was something they came to specifically for me because I did this and this is what they like about my work, the atmosphere and all that. Then I wouldn't skimp on it. I'd make it happen. I wouldn't have a twenty-five hour maquette. I might have a three to five hour maquette that that's not painted with wood paneling and LED lights, but uh, I would have something that said that that expressed what they loved about that work to begin with. And if it's if it's anything else, then that's just a completely different story. Well, I can speak to this too a little bit. Is first of all to the people who are maybe more beginners out there listening, um, it's ninety nine point nine percent always the best solution and plan to to get reference, to get good reference, and to invest some time into reference. A lot of times it just seems like, geez, for me to call up somebody and to arrange a time and to take a photo and to set up lights, it seems like too much of a hassle. But then when you consider that that reference can dictate 
you know, massively important aspects of your painting, like a facial expression or good hand gestures, that's more important than, let's say, if that takes you four hours, that's more important than four random hours of, of rendering your painting. Four hours can be saved other times in the process. So the beginning stages, each of those hours is exponentially worth more than the hours further along in the process. So that's one thing people learn and will need to learn as they progress along an illustration career is to don't skimp on the reference stage. Um, now, talking to Mark's point about deadlines, this is something that's really quite a big issue for me lately. The past year, I'm doing less and less drawing and more and more drawing right on the computer and using 3D models. And it really is just a matter of deadline. It's a matter of, geez, I need to do a sketch by tomorrow, and that sketch has to have like a building in it or you know, some complicated 3D interactions. You just have to do it. There is no question of, is this process growing my skill set? Is this process a pure form of art? You're just pursuing solutions. You're just using tools at that point. So, um, like I said, in the past year, I've been using 3D more and more. And it's annoying, you know, to not get those solutions through drawing and through my, my skills. But at the end of the day, when I look at the final art, um, I'm sure happy I, I did take some of these steps and um, corrected some perspective problems or, or found some solutions, even though it was a, a technical process and not an artistic process, I think uh, it, it trumps the things that I lost in, in, that, uh, in that process, which is, which is another thing I wanted to mention in the, the pitfalls of, of 3D. Um, let's just move on to this then. The pitfalls of 3D, I'd like to mention... Um, now, are we talking digital 3D? Because you know, I would everything, say, that, every, everything that Grant does is 3D, too. I would say so. both. Okay. Maybe more so digital 3D, but both. Now, I'm constantly looking at other artists, and I'm looking at my own work, and I know I have a habit of thinking really literally, so if an image is asking for something really complicated, I give them something really complicated. Whereas I look at another artist and the art director will be asking for something really complicated and the other artist gives them an awesome silhouette. Now, it's annoying when I see the picture with an awesome silhouette having way more power, way more gesture, way more compositional effect than the pains I took to get, you know, the correct perspective solution to that problem. So I think that's a real pitfall in pursuing reference is is blindly doing it when maybe the image doesn't need it. Maybe the solution to this painting or this graphic is a shape. It's a silhouette. It's something faked and it's not important to pursue these nuances. So the pitfalls of, of reference and, and more specifically digital reference um, I have written down here somewhere <laughs> are numerous yeah numerous 
thank you. Uh, basically, taking away your artistic decision making. So, thinking too literally, um, filling filling the art order with literal depictions of everything, and uh, not filtering out and composing the image around a focal point as much as you should. Um, also, just the the uh, the pitfall of of not drawing, of of loss of hand dexterity, loss of of visual thinking by pursuing the component parts of an illustration, i.e., reference gathering, versus pure drawing, pure pure design on paper. So those you are the just, just because you can see every brick in perspective on a, a brick wall doesn't mean you necessarily have to go in and render it. Exactly. And if it's in front of you, if you've got a photo of it, if you've got a rendering of it, it's so tough not to put it in. You just you st- you start thinking that way, you get blinders on, your reference really starts to dictate way more and into to, to Look at reference and then to throw it away is is probably the hardest thing to do. So I think we've talked in the past about different ways to use reference, like a good practice is to to use black and white reference as much as possible. And I guess the same thing in, in 3D rendering is, is find a way for your brain to filter that information. So maybe look at the uh, the reference more as shapes. Maybe look at the reference more as as graphical elements and and less as a large collection of of intricate details. So, what do you guys think are are additional pitfalls to to three dimensional reference? A three dim- Oh, just in general, you're talking about just having uh, the genre. I, I I think that's actually a big part of it. Right there is getting getting stuck on the reference. It's something I struggle with a lot of the time, especially when I put a lot of time and effort into a, a model maquette. Um, I definitely would think that, that would, that's a problem I've seen in a lot of 3D and digital art where they, they've used just a, a, a really poorly thought out 3D model and said, this has everything I need, and I'll just fudge the rest. But you know, <laughs> just thinking back what Julie Bell said back at IMC, that you know when someone asked if what what do you do if you can't get the reference you need? She's like, well then, you don't do that painting, or <laughs> you just change it. Uh, so it's 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 a very fine line between getting married to your reference and and being being able to throw it away. Say, oh cool, I got the information I needed from this, mm. or having a you know I I, I for me the, the my solution to that has been to uh, to have several different references in front of me, try and capture a lot of the same lighting or the same kind of form, then when I have a 3D model in front of me, putting all the, putting a lot of that knowledge together with it, getting the shape, getting in, just like with figure drawing, okay, great, I've got the shape, but well, the shape doesn't dictate the form, except for in very subtle ways. What is the majority of it? It's the lighting, it's the values, it's the tone of this, and that... That's just like you said with with taking a, a 3D model of something, creating an outline, and going from there. You're filling in all the pieces. You're creating the dimensionality to it, and that's what we do with any painting. We're creating dimensionality from nothing. I want to so, go back to just quickly something you had mentioned there. Was that Julie Bell had made that remark that you wouldn't make that painting, or you would you would find a different uh, different way? Was that Julie? Yeah. I think that's very, very important to stress is, okay, let's say the solution, let, let's say the problem is you have to visualize 
a figure, and this is like a large figure with an expressive face and hands in full light. And let's say you're saying, well, I can't find reference. It's too difficult to get reference of this. I think that's exactly it. If you if you pursue that without the answers, without the solutions, without the reference, you're going down a, a bad, bad path there. If, if you're going to start to try to paint that face without a really good idea of the nuances of the lighting and the expression, you're just going to run into problems. So looking at my remark before where I said I, I use fo- photography whenever there's sort of a, a close-up face or wherever there's high fidelity, high resolution needed in an image. And whenever there's an active figure, I, I don't use photography at all, only where needed. I think that, that relates to, to Julie's message there as to make sure you have the right reference for the job. Make sure that, you know, if the job is dictating, I want to see the eyelashes and the glint of the eye of this character's face, you better make sure you have the information to render that realistically and not fudge it and not think a 3D model can do that for you or drawing from your head can do that from you. And right down to getting the correct character type for that model. Don't, you know, take your pudgy office worker and expect to paint an awesome picture, you know, of Conan's face. It's just not going to work. I, I I can speak to that. I can speak to that because uh, at the, the IMC two years ago, I had a uh, I had used and, and uh, photographed a figure reference for my John Carter of Mars uh, painting that I was doing, and what I ended up using was I, I had a an individual who was willing to model for me, uh, who I had available, and I took you know, the photography that I was going to use for the painting. And he was just, he honestly, he was not the right character for the, for that painting. Uh, you know, he didn't have the right facial features, uh, didn't have the right body type or all that kind of thing. But what, it, what he was, was available. Uh, and when I got to IMC, I struggled with, with that reference photography uh, for probably two days, trying to make it work to to the image that I had in my head and and you know you you're, you're looking at your reference you know you've got your you know to the gesture which is just it's it's not exactly right and you know the facial features is just you know it's it's close because it's a human being but it's just it's it's not the case and then uh Mark Chef was there one day and he had a he was wearing a beard for the first like two days and he looked like an entirely different guy. And one day he came in like the third day he had shaved and he was the exact character that I was looking for in my piece. I like, I grabbed him out of shoulders. I'm like, come with me. I walked him right outside. I took reference photography of his face and the, uh, you know, in the, in the right facial expressions. And the piece just kind of flew out after that because I had, you know, the, the right model, the right reference, the right, ex, you know, expressions and all the things you were just talking about. And it just made it so much simpler. <laughs> well, so I absolutely totally agree with you. Well, and, and that uh, I, I, want to chime in as well that uh, what about what you said earlier Mike that gathering the right reference and creating creating the painting almost creating the, the the characters and the concepts fully in a painting before you even 
put the first real stroke on it. Uh, it, it just gathering and having the reference on hand that, that informs your decision, informs your hand, informs your artistic vision as you're going along. If you got, if you have all that legwork on the front end, for me, it, it made a huge. It continues to make a huge difference. So yeah, I put a lot of time into this maquette, but I've got that later on, and these things can be sped up. Why is this painting not working? Why is this lighting not working? You have that information in front of you instead of trying to just like Mark was describing, putting a couple days into something and having to backtrack and do what you should have done at the beginning. It's a painful lesson whenever you learn it, and it's painful the second and third time you continue to learn it. But uh, you're going to waste so much more time, energy, and enthusiasm for a painting. And, and sometimes it's very laborious to get it all up front, and I, I you know, have a stack of things or these pictures hanging around. I've got this model here. No matter what the piece is, every time that I gather almost too much and can throw away things can be more discerning like oh no this is exactly what I want You've, that's all that time that you don't have to spend later on tweaking it, fixing it, agonizing over why it's not working or people saying really because that, that leg doesn't look like it should work right, that, what is happening here you're, 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 the, the painting will either fail or you're going to have to come back and do it later on so might as well do it you know, on the front end and, and, and be as prepared as you can yeah a couple of things to that is you know, one, like when I paint, it's it's purely mechanical. It's like I'm rounding forms, I am coloring it, and like all the design, all the proportion, all the solutions, they're done in the black and white in the drawing stage. Like you don't want to be remaking up proportions no. as you're, you know, painting. And second of all is the whole practice that we're talking about, uh, pursuing good reference, whether it be 3D or otherwise, it's just a, a great thing to do and get used to doing earlier in your career, and you won't have to do it as much later in your career. So, you know, Boris Vallejo could probably paint, you know, a 85% fidelity, you know, naked male holding a sword than he does with a photograph in front of him. But, you know, he wouldn't have been able to do that starting out in his career. So having the great reference builds the visual vocabulary. It allows you to to look at real-world lighting, whether it's, you know, a, fo a photograph. It, it's still real-world. It's still telling you the proportion of something and the structure of something and how light hits something on a form. So the more reference you work with, the more you're building your understanding of reality. And, you know, it's, it's a time-saver later in your career. Huzzah. Huzzah. <laughs> Have we pretty much exhausted this one now, guys? Uh, yeah, I, I think I think, uh, I, I think it's been a very good cast, very, very informative. I hope, I hope listeners out there would agree, but uh, I know for me it's, yes, right. <laughs> exhaustive will, and exhausting. Uh, I will just quickly discuss, actually, some differences in using photography versus 3D models. Let's just uh, quickly go through some things. So, for instance, when I use uh, 3D models, okay, there's no mess, there's no materials, it's uh, easily storable, it's easily retrieved for the future, it's shareable. Um, any object you make can be looked through, transparent, squashed, bent, looked upside down. You can color any object. You can make any object any texture. Now, 3D is generally not very good at 
things that are not hard surface, so foliage, organics, things that are porous. Um, again, not very good at real lighting unless you have more powerful programs than than 90% of illustrators would delve into. Now, what else can you guys think in terms of real 3D or digital 3D would be would be quick uh, quick pros and cons or, or uh, advantages or disadvantages for digital uh, dimensionality or yeah, I mean, for I can understand, for instance, digital any model you get, unless you put significant work into um, the texturing and the materials of it. It's going to be a smooth surface. It's not going to have bumps and damage and variety. It's not going to have a surface that light plays off of in a realistic manner. Um, and I guess the opposite can be said of a model, like Mark was talking about his B52 model, that the, scale, okay, the scale of it being plastic, I can imagine, like you're saying, the glass thickness and the joints and the glue and the seams all being, you know, just not quite uh, not quite to the scale that it needs to be for, for light to to hit the surfaces properly and give you information. So do you guys have any other last minute thoughts here as to to quick advantages or disadvantages of these reference forms? Uh, yes. <laughs> I think uh, I think uh, first the the pros of my approach for me is the again that dimensionality and atmosphere that you have having the object physically in space in front of you 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 have a greater understanding of the model the more in depth the more thought you've put into it you have uh, you have again all those those variabilities with lighting that you can create or if you want I need daylight I need this you can put the model out in space. Disadvantage, of course, would be the time and information that you would need for it. The cost is is prohibitive for some people. Uh, for me, having just uh, just a horde of bits and pieces to, to come from, uh, which we, you can all acquire, but it is it's cost prohibitive storing it. Um, and again, an advantage would be that you have this thing in space that you can show other people that, that is, as an illustrator, something that showcases your work even further. So... Those are those are pretty obvious pros and cons, but they're they're substantial similarities. I would say with digital, though, would be that the, it's never going to be exactly what you envision in your head. It's never going to be precisely what you needed in that instance. These are all tools that are informative. The more time and effort you put into a 3D digital model, uh, the more the more money you put into a program, whatever it was that, that allows you to create and it, all those details and things, and then put it in its space. Not just create detail for detail's sake and make it more finicky or whatever, but creating a more elaborate, well thought out model. The better you're going to be informed, but you're still just being informed, not dictated by it. Same thing with a physical model. You you can't draw a steel hole from this. You're going to get the shape. You're getting to get the rounding of form. You're going to get the overall sleek design of an aerodynamic ship, or the clunkiness of a of a modified tractor, or the grin of a dragon peeking out from behind rock light. Whatever it is, you get informed by the each of these mediums, and you should never let those mediums then dictate your final piece. So. And what I would have to say on that is 
I think everybody is going to be different, and everybody is going to have their individual uh, takes and the way their their mind works and and the way their creative process works. Uh, the the best thing that anybody can do is is determine what works for them because, for example, it, even though you know the the digital programs are perfectly capable of generating reference of a three-dimensional object in which you can spin around and you can light uh, you know, in various ways and, and get an informed reference. There are going to be people out there, and I would include myself in that, uh, that at times, you know, uh, no matter how three-dimensional it's going to look in, in cyberspace, it's still a flat image. You know, having a, an actual physical three-dimensional model that you can hold in your hand that you can you know you can twist your own wrists and 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 turn into a lighting source or multiple light sources you know an actual have the uh, you know the physical experience of, of of touching this model and seeing how it fills three-dimensional space um, may actually affect you know your perception and you know of, of how you need to recreate this uh, on you know your flat canvas and what you're seeing. Um, the, another another example of that type of thing would be, you, you know, to um, to paint from a photograph, you know, which you may have taken of a model, um, which has the correct lighting and everything it is one thing, but to to paint from life from a model in front of you, where you have the ability to. You know, use your binocular vision, close an eye, you know, open, open both eyes, you know, move slightly to the left, slightly to the right to be able to, to view, you know, the, the depth and, and the volume of, of shape, you know, instantaneously like that um, and be able to, to process that information uh, is a good thing that you can't, in some cases, get from a three-dimensional modeling program on the computer. But... You know, each person is going to be different, so they're going to utilize the tools to the best effect that they can. So, I think that the best thing that anybody can do is experiment with all of these things we've been talking about and find out what works for you best. Huzzah! Huzzah! <laughs> Mike disagrees. Listen to him. Harumph, <laughs> harumph. I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Uh, I'm hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, thanks so much, all you listeners out there. Thanks for listening to me, Grant Cooley, go on. Again, my work, you can find it at uh, grantcooley.com. I'll be sure to upload some more pictures of the maquettes I've used and link them over to the pieces that they've helped create. Hopefully this helps you out. And if you have any questions, of course, feel free to email me through any number of mediums, Facebook, website, Drawn Today. I'll be glad to help you out as best I can or, or listen to your thoughts and opinions. And if you need a plastic B25 model, it'll be up on eBay tomorrow. Um, the bidding is going to start at... <laughs> 25 cents. <laughs> 25 cents. Uh, I'm, I'm saving up for my new 3D modeling program. Yeah. <laughs> well, right, I think guys. that was well, a good podcast, so um, I'll do my sign-off. My name is Mike Sass. My website is www.sassart.com. My blog is sassart.blogspot.com. Um, tomorrow was time for me to write a new blog post. I'm going to post some newly released World of Warcraft card art. And uh, I'm actually going to detail a little bit their use of 3D in an instance. So 
anybody wants to check out my blog, they'll see how I use 3D for a simple magic effect. And, uh, Mark, what was your name and website? I can't remember. Yeah, and I'm Mark Harchar. My website is markharchar.com. And as soon as I finish my B25 piece, I will also post it to my blog with some of my reference uh, photography, uh, pictures of the, the model, and uh, some of the other references I use to create it and uh, explain the process a little bit more in detail. Sounds so good. You can all check it out. <laughs> this is Rock the time play. that the music fades in, right, Mark? <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of the Drawn Today Podcast. Drawn Today Podcast is a proud member of the Visual Artist Podcast Network. If you have questions or comments on tonight's podcast, feel free to contact us at drawntoday at gmail.com. The Drawn Today podcast is a production of the Drawn Today blog. Drawn Today is a combined effort of artists and illustrators who share our daily drawings, paintings, and sketches with each other and our friends. The music on today's episode was brought to you by Collide. You can learn more about Collide and their music at collide.net. <laughs>